Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. So I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. No, sir. Let's get into it. We're starting off with this one from the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times from Monday, February 12, 2024. Israel says tunnels found under UN refugee agency. Military alleges that Hamas fighters are using the city, the Gaza City facility as an electrical supply room by Ariel Shalit. Gaza City, Gaza Strip. The Israeli military says it has discovered tunnels underneath the main headquarters of the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees in Gaza City, alleging that Hamas militants use the space as an electrical supply room. The unveiling of the tunnels marked the latest chapter in Israel's campaign against the embattled agency known as UNRWA, which it accuses of collaborating with Hamas. Recent Israeli allegations that a dozen staff members participated in the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7 plunged the agency into a financial crisis, prompting major donors, donor states to suspend their funding as well as twin investigations. The agency says that Israel has also frozen its bank account, embargoed aid shipments, and canceled its tax benefits. The army invited a journalist to view a section of the tunnel on Thursday. It did not prove definitely that Hamas militants operated in the tunnels underneath the UNRWA facility, but it did show that at least a portion of the tunnel ran underneath the facility's courtyard. The military claimed that the headquarters supplied the tunnels with electricity. UNRWA Commissioner General Philippe Lazzarini said the agency had no knowledge of the facilities underground, but the findings merit an independent inquiry, which the agency is unable to perform because of the ongoing war. The headquarters on the western edge of Gaza City are now decimated. To locate the tunnel, forces repeated an Israeli tactic used elsewhere in the Strip, overturning mounds of red earth to produce a crater-like hole giving way to a small tunnel entrance. The unearthed shaft led to an underground passageway that an Associated Press journalist estimated stretched for at least an eighth of a mile, with at least ten doors. At one point, journalists were able to gaze upward from the tunnel through a hole and make eye contact with soldiers standing in a courtyard within the UNRWA facility. Inside one of the UNRWA buildings, journalists saw a room full of computers with wires stretching down into the ground. The soldiers then showed them a room in the underground tunnel where they claimed the wires connected. That underground room bore a wall of electrical cabinets with multicolored buttons and was lined with dozens of cables. The military claimed the room served as a hub-powering tunnel infrastructure in the area. 20 meters above us is the UNRWA headquarters, said Lieutenant Colonel Ido, whose last name was redacted by the military. This is the electricity room. You can see all around here. The batteries, electricity on walls, everything is conducted from here. All the energy for the tunnels which you walk through them are powered from here. The AP journalists could see the tunnels stretching beyond the area underneath the facility. Hamas had acknowledged building hundreds of miles of tunnels across Gaza. One of the main objectives of the Israeli offensive has been to destroy that network, which it says is used by Hamas to move fighters, weapons, and supplies throughout the territory. 
It accuses Hamas of using civilians as human shields and has exposed many tunnels running near mosques, schools, and UN facilities. Lazzarini said the agency was unaware what lay beneath it, saying he had visited the facility multiple times and did not recognize the electrical room. In a statement, Lazzarini wrote that the UNRWA had conducted a regular quarterly inspection of the facility in September. UNRWA is a human development and humanitarian organization that does not have the military and security expertise nor the capacity to undertake military inspections of what is or might be under its premises, the statement read. Also in the tunnel, journalists saw a small bathroom with a toilet and a faucet, a room with shelves and a room with two small vehicles in it that soldiers said the militants used to traverse the tunnel network. The military said Saturday night that the tunnel began at UNRWA school and was 765 yards long and 20 yards deep. The military said forces uncovered rifles, ammunition, grenades, and explosives in the facility, claiming it has been used by Hamas militants. Lazzarini said the agency has not revisited the headquarters since staff evacuated October 12th and is unaware of how the facility may have been used. Israel has found similar primitive quarters in tunnels over the course of its four-month-long campaign in Gaza. The offensive was launched after Hamas militants attacked Israel on October 7, killing some 1,200 people and dragging 250 hostages back to Gaza. Since then, Israeli warplanes and ground troops have killed more than 27,000 Palestinians in the Strip and wreaked widespread damage. Leaving the facility, it was nearly impossible to identify one window left fully intact. Bullet holes pockmarked uh, pock the walls. Shrapnel was everywhere. And crumpled UN vehicles were perched precariously atop building debris. Dogs roamed the area. The Israeli army is occupying our biggest UN RWA headquarters, Toma said in response to Israeli allegations. That's what's outrageous. That was Israel says tunnels found under UN refugee agency by Ariel Shalit. From the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 12, 2024, Shalit writes for the Associated Press. AP writer Julia Frankel contributed to this report. And also from the same Los Angeles Times, uh, Monday, February 12, 2024, from the World section, Israel needs a plan to protect Rafa civilians, Biden asserts, by Najib Jovain and Sami Magdi. Rafa Gaza's trip. Israel should not conduct a military operation in the densely populated Gaza border town of Rafa without a credible and executable plan to protect civilians, President Biden told Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Sunday, the White House said. It was the most forceful language yet from the president on the possible operation. Biden, who last week called Israel's military response in Gaza over the top, also called for urgent and specific steps to strengthen humanitarian assistance to Palestinians in the region. The leader spoke after two Egyptian officials and a Western diplomat said Egypt had threatened to suspend its peace treaty with Israel if Israeli troops are sent into Rafah, where fighting could push Palestinians into the Sinai Peninsula and force the closure of Gaza's main aid supply route. In addition, the pair discussed negotiations on the release of all hostages. Israel's Channel 13 television said the conversation lasted 45 minutes. The threat to suspend the Camp David Accords, a cornerstone of regional st- uh, stability for nearly half a century, 
came after Netanyahu said sending troops into Rafah's, Rafah is necessary to win the war against the Palestinian militant group Hamas. He asserted that Hamas has four battalions in the area. More than half of Gaza's population of 2.3 million have fled to Rafah to escape fighting in other areas and are packed into sprawling tent camps and United Nations-run shelters near the border. Egypt fears a mass influx of hundreds of thousands of Palestinian refugees who may never be allowed to return to Gaza. Netanyahu told Fox News that there's plenty of room north of Rafah for them to go to and said Israel would direct evacuees with flyers and cell phones and with safe corridors and other things. The standoff between Israel and Egypt, two U.S. allies, took shape as aid groups warned that an offensive in Rafah would worsen the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, where around 80% of residents have fled their homes and a quarter of the population faces starvation, according to the U.N. A ground operation in Rafah could cut off one of the only avenues for delivering badly needed food and medical supplies. On Sunday, 44 aid trucks entered Gaza, according to Wael Abu Omar, a spokesman for the Palestinian Crossings Authority. About 500 entered daily before the war. Hamas's Al-Aqiza television station quoted an unnamed Hamas official as saying that any invasion of Rafah would blow up talks mediated by the U.S., Egypt, and Qatar aimed at achieving a ceasefire and the release of Israeli hostages. All three officials confirmed Egypt's threats, speaking on condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to brief reporters on the sensitive negotiations. Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and other countries have also warned of severe repercussions if Israel goes into Rafah. An Israeli offensive on Rafah would lead to an unspeakable humanitarian catastrophe and grave tensions with Egypt, European Union foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell wrote on X. Human Rights Watch said forced displacement is a war crime. There is nowhere safe to go in Gaza, the organization's Nadia Hardman, a researcher on refugees, said. The White House, which has rushed arms to Israel and shielded from, shielded from the international calls for a ceasefire, has warned that a Rafah ground operation would be a disaster for civilians. Israel and Egypt fought five wars before signing the Camp David Accords, a landmark peace treaty brokered by the U.S. in the late 1970s and includes provisions governing the deployment of forces on both sides of the heavy for heavily fortified border. The United Nations says Rafah, normally home to fewer than 300,000 people, now hosts 1.4 million more who fled fighting elsewhere and is severely overcrowded. In Rafah, some displaced people have packed up again. Rafat and Theda Abu Alub, who had fled Beit Lahia, in the north, placed their belongings on the back of a truck. We don't know where we can safely take them, Fedas said of their baby. Take him, Fedas said of their baby. Every month we have to move, and with all the fear and miss missiles. An Israeli ground invasion of Rafah may force Palestinians to flee to Egypt. But we hope Egyptians do not accept the situation and do not open the borders to deport us to Sinai because we do not want to leave, said Om Muhammad al-Jemri, who was displaced from Nusirat. Israel has ordered much of Gaza's population to flee south, with evacuation orders covering two-thirds of the territory, even as it regularly carries out airstrikes in all areas, including Rafah. Airstrikes on the town in recent days have killed dozens of 
Palestinians, including women and children. Gaza's health ministry said Sunday that the bodies of 112 people killed across the territory had been brought to hospitals in the previous 24 hours. There were also 173 wounded. The fatalities brought the death toll to 28,176 since the start of the war. The ministry does not distinguish between civilians and fighters, but says most of those killed were women and children. The war began with Hamas's attack in southern Israel on October 7, when Palestinian militants killed about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and abducted around 240. More than 100 hostages were released in, a November, in November during a week-long ceasefire in exchange for 240 Palestinian prisoners. Some of the remaining hostages have died. Hamas has said it won't release any more hostages until Israel ends its offensive and withdraws from Gaza. It has also demanded the release of hundreds of Palestinian prisoners, including senior militants serving life sentences. Netanyahu has ruled out both demands, saying Israel will fight until achieving total victory and the return of all hostages. That was Israel needs a plan to protect Rafah civilians, Biden asserts, by Najib Jobain and Sami Magdi, from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, February 12, 2024. Jobain and Magdi write for the Associated Press. All right, here's something from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 14, 2024. Officials report progress in talks by Israel-Hamas. Qatar and U.S. aim to help craft final draft of six-week ceasefire deal, Egypt says. From the Associated Press. Cairo. Israel and Hamas are making progress toward another ceasefire and hostage release deal, officials said Tuesday, as negotiations continued and Israel threatened to expand its offensive to Gaza's southern edge, where about 1.4 million Palestinians have sought refuge. The talks took place in Egypt a day after Israeli forces rescued two captives in Rafah, then, then the packed southern town along the Egyptian border. The Israeli raid killed at least 74 Palestinians, according to local health officials, and caused heavy destruction. The operation offered a glimpse of what a full-blown ground assault might look like. A ceasefire deal would give people in Gaza a desperately needed respite from the war, now in its fifth month, and offer freedom for at least some of the estimated 100 people still held captive in the enclave. Qatar, the U.S., and Egypt have sought to broker a deal in the face of starkly disparate, desperate positions expressed public, publicly by Israel and Hamas. Israel has made destroying Hamas's governing and military capabilities and freeing the hostages the main goals of the war, which were launched after thousands of Hamas-led militants attacked in, in southern Israel on October 7, killing about 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and taking roughly 240 people captive. Tens of thousands of Israelis were displaced from destroyed com communities. The war has brought unprecedented destruction to the Gaza Strip, with more than 28,000 people killed and more than 70% of them women and minors, according to local health officials. Vast swaths of the territory have been flattened by Israel's offensive. Around 80% of the population has been displaced and a humanitarian catastrophe has pushed more than a quarter of the population toward starvation. South Africa, which has lodged genocide allegations against Israel at the International Court of Justice, said Tuesday that it filed an urgent request with the court to consider 
whether Israel's military operations in Rafah constitute a breach of provisional orders handed down by the justices last month. Those orders called on Israel to take greater measures to spare civilians. Israel's adamantly denied the genocide allegations. It blames Hamas for the high death toll because the militants operate in dense residential areas. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to press on until total victory. A senior Egyptian official said mediators have achieved relatively significant progress before a meeting in, meeting Tuesday in Cairo of representatives from Qatar, the U.S., and Israel. The official said the meeting would focus on crafting a final draft of a six-week ceasefire deal with guarantees that the parties would continue negotiations toward a permanent truce. CIA Chief William Burns and David Barnea, head of Israel's Mossad spy agency, both att attended the Cairo talks. Both men played a key role in brokering the previous ceasefire. A Western diplomat in the Egyptian capital also said a six-week deal was on the table, but cautioned that more work is still needed to reach an agreement. The diplomat said Tuesday's meeting would be crucial in bridging the remaining gaps. Both officials spoke on condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to discuss the sensitive talks with the media. Although the officials did not disclose the precise details of the emerging deal, the sides have been discussing varying proposals for weeks. Israel has proposed a two-month ceasefire in which hostages would be freed in exchange for the release of Palestinians imprisoned by Israel and top Hamas leaders in Gaza would be allowed to relocate to other countries. Hamas rejected those terms. It laid out a three-phase plan of 45 days each in which the hostages would be released in stages. Israel would free hundreds of imprisoned Palestinians, including senior militants, and the war would wind down, with Israel withdrawing its troops. That was viewed as a non-starter for Israel, which wants to topple Hamas before ending the war. But President Biden signaled this week that a deal might be within reach. The key elements of the deal are on the table, Biden said Monday, alongside visiting Jordanian King Abdullah II. That was officials report progress in talks by Israel Hamas from the Associated Press out of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 14, 2024. All right, we have one more Israel story here from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 16, 2024. Israel Storms Hospital Seeking Hostage Remains. Raid in southern Gaza comes after patients are hit by fire. Hamas held captives at the facility, military says. By Wafa Sharafa, Basim Moreau, and Melanie Lidman. Rafa, Gaza Strip. Israeli forces stormed the main hospital in southern Gaza on Thursday, hours after Israeli fire killed a patient and wounded six others inside the complex. The army said it was a limited operation seeking the remains of hostages who were seized by Hamas. The raid on Nasser Hospital came after troops had besieged the facility for nearly a week, with hundreds of staffers, patients, and others inside struggling amid heavy fire and dwindling supplies, including food and water. A day earlier, the army ordered thousands of displaced people who had taken shelter there to leave the hospital, which is in Khan Yunus, the city that has been the focus of Israel's offensive against Hamas in recent weeks. The war shows no sign of ending and the risk of a broader conflict is growing as Israel and Lebanon's Hezbollah step up attacks after a particularly deadly exchange Wednesday. The Israeli military said it had credible intelligence that Hamas had held hostages at the hospital 
and that the remains of some might still be inside. Israel accuses a militant group of using hospitals and other civilian structures to shield its fighters. A released hostage told the Associated Press last month that she and more than two dozen other captives had been held in Nasser Hospital. International law prohibits the targeting of medical facilities, but they can lose those protections if used for military purposes, though operations against them still must be proportional to any threat. As troops searched hospital buildings, they ordered more than 460 staff members, patients, and their relatives to move into an older building in the compound that isn't equipped to treat patients, the Gaza Health Ministry said. They were in harsh conditions with no food or baby formula and severe water shortages, it said. Six patients were left in intensive care, along with three infants in incubators with no staff to attend to them. The ministry said fuel for generators would soon run out, endangering their lives. Separately, Israel launched airstrikes in southern Lebanon for a second day after killing 10 civilians and three Hezbollah fighters Wednesday in response to a rocket attack that killed an Israeli soldier and wounded several others. It was the deadliest exchange of fire along the border since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Israel and Hezbollah, an ally of Hamas, have been trading fire on a daily basis, raising the risks of a broader conflict. Hezbollah has not claimed responsibility for Wednesday's rocket attack. But Sheikh Nabil Kauk, K-A-O-U-K, a senior member of the group, says it is preparing for the possibility of expanding the war and would meet escalation with escalation, dis displacement with displacement, and destruction with destruction. Negotiations over a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip, meanwhile, appear to have stalled and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has vowed to continue the offensive until Hamas is destroyed and scores of hostages taken during the militant's October 7 cross-border attack that sparked the war are returned. Nasser Hospital has been the latest focus of Israeli military attacks that have gutted Gaza's health sector as it struggles to treat scores of patients wounded in daily bombardments. Israeli troops, tanks, and snipers have surrounded the hospital for at least a week, and fire from outside has recently killed several people inside, according to health officials. There's no water, no food. Garbage is everywhere. Sewage has flooded the emergency ward, said Raid Abed, a wounded patient who was among those who left Nasser Hospital on Israeli orders Wednesday. Still suffering from a severe stomach wound, Abed said he initially collapsed as he got out of his hospital bed and tried to leave. He then waited outside for hours, as troops made those leaving pass by five at, five at a time, arresting some and making them strip to their underwear, he said. Finally, he walked for miles until he reached the border town of Rafa, where he was put in a hospital. Lying in a bed there, he wheezed in pain from his wound as he spoke. Overnight, a strike slammed into one of Nasser Hospital's wards, killing one patient and wounding six others. Dr. Khalid Al-Sir, one of the remaining surgeons there, told the AP. Videos showed medics scrambling to move patients down a corridor filled with smoke or dust, while in a dark room, a wounded man screamed in pain as gunfire echoed outside. The situation is escalating every hour and every minute, Al-Sir said. The International Aid Group Doctors of Borders, also known by its French acronym MSF, said that its staff had to flee the hospital Thursday, leaving patients behind, and that one staffer was detained at an Israeli checkpoint just outside the facility. 
Hours after troops entered the hospital, Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, the chief Israeli military spokesperson, said they were still conducting searches. He said dozens of militants were arrested on hospital grounds, including three who participated in the October 7 attack. He said that troops found grenades and mortar shells, and that Israeli radar determined that militants fired mortar rounds from the hospital grounds a month ago. The war began in when Hamas militants burst through Israel's formidable defenses on October 7 and rampaged through several communities, killing about 1,200 people and taking about 240 other hostages. More than 100 of the captives were freed during a ceasefire last year in exchange for 240 Palestinian prisoners. About 130 captives remain in Gaza, a fourth of whom are believed to be dead. Netanyahu has come under intense pressure from families of the hostages and the wider public to make a deal to secure their freedom. But his far-right coalition partners could bring down his government if he is seen as being too soft on Hamas. Israel responded to the October 7 attack by launching one of its deadliest and most destructive military campaigns in recent history. At least 28,663 Palestinians have been killed, mostly women and children, and more than 68,000 wounded, according to Gaza's health ministry, which does not distinguish between civilians and combatants. About 80% of the population have fled their homes and a quarter are starving amid a worsening humanitarian catastrophe. Large areas in northern Gaza, the first target of Israel's attacks, have been destroyed. But Israeli media have reported that CIA director William Burns flew to Israel to meet with Netanyahu to discuss efforts for a ceasefire. Hamas says it will not release all the remaining captives until Israel withdraws and frees a large number of Palestinian prisoners, including top militants. Netanyahu has rejected those demands and says Israel will soon expand its offensive into Gaza's southernmost city of Rafah on the Egyptian border. More than half of Gaza's population of 2.3 million has sought refuge in Rafah after fleeing fighting elsewhere in the coastal enclave. Airstrikes late Wednesday in central Gaza killed at least 11 people, including four children and five women, according to hospital records. Relatives gathered around bodies wrapped in white shrouds outside Al-Aqiza Martyrs Hospital in the central town of Deir al-Bala before the remains were placed in a truck to be taken for burial. Women struggled to let go, lying down and holding one of the bodies on the truck as he wept. That was Israel Storms Hospital Seeking Hostage Remains by Wafa Sharafa, Basim Maru, and Melanie Lidman from the World Section of the uh, Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 16, 2024. Sharafa, Maru, and Lidman write for the Associated Press and reported from Rafa, Beirut, and Jerusalem, respectively. AP writer Karim Shehayib in Beirut contributed to this report. All right, now we got a special article here from the Sunday section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 11, 2024. This is called War Puts Two Girls' Bond to the Test. The friendship between uh, of a Jewish and Palestinian Christian teens holds up, bolstered by Peace Program's lessons by Kate Lithicum. Tel Aviv. Two girls, both 16, sit shoulder to shoulder at a crowded Tel Aviv cafe. Each wears a cropped sweater, hoop earrings, and a gold necklace, one featuring a Star of David, the other a cross. It's storming outside, big cracks of thunder, torrents of rain, 
and at the table, the conversation that takes a tempestuous turn. October 7 was not about land or the occupation, says Adar, referencing last year's deadly attack on Israel. It was about hating Jews. Angelina snorts. Of course it was about land, she says. I have a question. If someone came to you and said, I want half your house, would you be like, yeah, okay, take it? Of course not, says Adar. But at the end of the day, it wasn't like the Jews came here from the Holocaust and decided to open up a war. We didn't have any place to go. Just then, the waiter approaches and asks if the girls are ready to order. For a moment, they shove the debate and turn to the question of brunch. Angelina and Adar are like fr any friends. They love volleyball. They love shopping. They love Drake. They open up about their families, their boyfriends, their anxieties about their future. They share clips of cute animals and memes. Unlike many friends, these two Israeli citizens come from opposite sides of one of the world's most intractable conflicts. Angelina Shakur is a Christian Palestinian. Adar Hirak Asaf is Jewish. For a long time, it didn't seem to matter that they didn't always see eye to eye. Then came the brutal Hamas attack and Israel's retaliatory strikes on the Gaza Strip. As the war deepened and deaths mounted, they watched as other friends became more entrenched in their views. Both admit to sometimes hiding their friendship from family members or others who might judge. Thanks to the unique program in the United States that brought them together in the first place, Angelina and Adar are unusually skilled at navigating differences of opinion. They have been trained, in fact, for moments like this. But as the war tore seemingly uh, everything around them apart, a question hovered. Would their friendship survive? Angelina, who belongs to the community of Palestinians who remained inside Israel's borders after the country was founded in 1948, resides in a small town in the north. Adar lives two hours south in a suburb of Tel Aviv. They met 7,000 miles away from home at a summer camp in the mountains of northern New Mexico. Each year, a nonprofit called Tomorrow's Women uh, flies a group of girls from Israel and the occupied West Bank to Santa Fe for a leadership training course geared at building peace. The program, which emphasizes communication skills, is based on the idea that just one extraordinary woman can transform conflict with strength and compassion. Adar's mother learned about the program and encouraged her to reply. Angelina's mom did the same. But Angelina's father, who grew up watching his family fruitlessly fight to regain the land they had lost after the creation of the Jewish state, told her, you're going to waste your summer going to this camp. You're going to hear stories that are going to break your heart, and nothing's going to change. Fifteen girls gathered at a lodge on the shores of a small lake. They included seven Jewish-Israeli girls and seven Palestinian Muslims from Israel, East Jerusalem, and the occupied West Bank. Angelina was the sole Christian. They spent the first few days getting to know one another, taking hikes and making art. Then the hard part began. In lengthy dialogue sessions, the girls shared their experiences of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Facilitators urged them to recall anecdotes from their own lives rather than spout opinions and to practice listening without reacting. As Palestinians from the West Bank described life under Israeli occupation, nighttime raids on their town, the indignities of border checkpoints, Angelina felt a surge of recognition. 
one of 1.6 million Palestinians living inside Israel, she was grateful to have never experienced violence. But she knew the sitting of discrimination. She sometimes felt that people in her mostly Jewish town didn't like her because of her roots. She commuted to a nearby Arab village to attend school. For Adar, the criticism of Israel was destabilizing. Her grandfather came here after he escaped Auschwitz, the Nazi concentration camp where the rest of his family perished. For her, Israel was more than a country. It represented salvation. Angelina and Adar hadn't connected immediately, but as Adar struggled through the dialogue sessions, they grew closer. I got really stuck on my pain, Adar remembers. Angelina just listened, and that was enough. I was just excited to be there and listen and hug whoever needed to be hugged, Angelina says. Soon, the two were inseparable. Adar opened up about her parents' recent divorce. Angelina shared her hopes for the future to become an engineer, maybe an architect. After others went to sleep, they'd sneak out to bed and to cook chicken nuggets or hang out in a garage that had been converted into an art studio. They made beaded friendship necklaces and listened to songs from the Fugees and Kendrick Lamar. Sometimes they'd dive into the icy lake before sunrise. We didn't have our phones, said Angelina. We just had each other. The group had formed one of the tightest bonds that organizers could remember. There were other close friendships, including one between a Jewish girl from Tel Aviv and a Palestinian from a, West, from a refugee camp in the West Bank. When they returned home, the program continued. The girls toured East Jerusalem, where a border wall cuts through some of the neighborhoods separating families. They heard from two mothers, an Israeli and a Palestinian, who lost sons to violence, one in a terrorist attack in Tel Aviv, the other killed by Israeli soldiers in the West Bank. The women were friends and committed to peace. Afterward, as the girls joined in a group hug, Adar remembers thinking of the women, if they can do it, anybody can. The girls liked one another so much, they implored tomorrow's women to organize more events for them even after their program had ended. The group organized two other outings, a beach trip to Haifa and a dialogue session in, uh, sponsored by the Canadian Embassy. As the, at the embassy event, the facilitator asked, what were their dreams for the future? One of the girls from the West Bank told the group that she didn't have any. She was too consumed by the stress and the struggle for survival. It was October 5th, 2023. Early on October 7th, Adar returned home from a party around 3 a.m. and crawled into bed. When sirens began wailing a few hours later, she hustled to the bomb shelter in the basement of her apartment building. The sirens didn't stop. Scrolling social media, she discovered Israel was under attack. Angelina from her home in the north was realizing the same thing. She immediately messaged Adar, Are you okay? She was. When militants in Lebanon began launching bombs at northern Israel, Adar asked Angelina the same thing. She was safe too. But a few days in, Angelina, re Angelina reposted something to Instagram that angered Adar. It was a quote from an international journalist who suggested that the October 7 attacks were the natural result of Israel's longtime blockade on Gaza. Neither girl remembers the exact language, but it said something like, What did you expect? Adar fired off a message to Angelina. It could have turned ugly. It didn't. They worked things out with techniques they had learned at camp. Adar reminded herself that Angelina was an independent person with her own feelings and tried to really listen to her response. 
Angelina expressed empathy. Nobody deserved that, she said of the attack, and carefully explained the ideas behind her post. In the end, they agreed to disagree. They had survived to a potentially devastating hurdle, but the beloved group Friends was fraying. The problem was social media. During camp, the girls were guided by several previous graduates of the program. After October 7, one of them posted a video of her partner, a soldier, laughing and rifling through a woman's uh, intimate belongings inside a bombed outhouse in Gaza. Later, one of the Palestinian graduates of the program posted a meme that appeared to express support for Adolf Hitler. The girls' group chat, which had been a flurry of activity, went silent. Angelina stopped posting about the conflict, worried that she would offend friends like Adar or attract unwanted attention from the government. In recent months, hundreds of Palestinians living in Israel have been detained or interrogated in connection with things they have said online. Angelina, who hears explosions daily from Israel's skirmishes with militants on the Lebanese border, tries to avoid social media altogether. Videos of wounded children in Gaza leave her in tears. She can only glance at them briefly and feels terrible for averting her gaze. I feel guilty, she says. I'm acting like everything is fine. Adar is also distraught. She had friends who survived the Nova Music Festival where Hamas fighters killed hundreds. She knows soldiers who are serving near Gaza. She's fearful of an uptick of anti-Semitism around the globe. Next year, when they graduate high school, Angelina and Adar's paths will diverge. Adar will serve in the army, as is required of nearly all Jewish Israelis. Angelina will not. Eventually, she wants to leave. I don't feel like I belong here, she says. I want to get my degree and go. I want to live in a peaceful country. She's thinking about someplace in Europe. At the Tel Aviv cafe, Adar wants something sweet for brunch. Angelina has a hankering for something savory. For some reason, the mysterious logic of teenage friendship, they feel they must order the same thing. They finally settle on fruit, granola, and yogurt. By the time the food hits the table, it's still storming, and they are again locked in conversation. They agree on so much that the leaders of Hamas and Israel are to blame for the conflict, that most citizens on both sides of the Jewish-Palestinian divide are probably good people, that a new chart-topping Israeli trap song that calls for the destruction of Gaza is a travesty and should be taken off the internet. They talk about looming exams, their favorite folk song, the time they canoe together on the lake in New Mexico, but eventually they veer into more treacherous waters. The army is taking down Hamas, Adar says. We cannot have a terror organization around us that just wants to kill us. What they did is not right, Angelina says, but it was expected. After 75 years under occupation, but it was not an occupation. I'm talking about Bibi. Angelina says, using a nickname for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Why is he bombing houses? Because there are terrorists in the houses. But there are also civilians in the houses. They take a beat. I'm not scared to talk with her, continues Adar, resting her hand on Angelina's. Yeah, Angelina says, we're just talking. We're not fighting with fists, Adar says. You can hear something you don't agree with, and it's fine. In the end, Angelina thinks her father was right about the summer camp. It didn't change the contours of the broader conflict, but it did change her and Adar. 
By the time the bill comes, the rain has stopped. The girls decide to walk a few blocks to the beach. They link arms and fall into conversation. The wind blows their hair. The sun peeks out. When people pass them, they smile. That was War Puts Two Girls Bond to the Test by Kate Lithicum from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 11, 2024. Okay, we'll take leave of Israel for now. And uh, we will go to this one from the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, February 13, 2024. Iger's Disney regains footing. Challenges remain, but the company's stock is climbing, and its CEO is on the offensive again by Meg James and Christy Karras. After a bruising year of Hollywood strikes, wrench-cutting job cuts, and stock setbacks, Disney chief executive Bob Iger finally is racking up some wins. While delivering stronger-than-expected earnings uh, uh, from this last week, Igram made several announcements designed to keep the Burbank giant firmly ensconced in pop culture. ESPN will anchor a new sports streaming service launched next fall. Disney Plus will be the streaming home for Taylor Swift's concert tour movie. And Captain America and Baby Yoda could soon infiltrate the hit online game Fortnite thanks to Disney paying $1.5 billion dollars for a minority stake in Epic Games. The investors who've been fretting over Disney's troubles are beginning to see some relief. The company's stock is up 20% since the start of the year. Disney had its best day since 2021 on Wall Street following the earnings report. On Monday, shares gained nearly 1% to $109.29. The strong showing could help thwart activist investor Nelson Peltz's try-in fund management and a second shareholder, Blackwell's Capital Group, which are trying to stage a boardroom shakeup at Disney's annual shareholder meeting April 3rd. Whatever chance of success these activist investors had is being buried by 100,000 tons of Disney carbonite, T.D. Cowan media analyst Doug Krutz said in an interview after the earnings. The market likes what it sees. On Monday, Disney sent a letter to shareholders touting the significant steps Disney is taking as it successfully executes a strategic transformation of the company. However, analysts said Iger still has his work cut out for him in order to get the Mouse Mouse House back in order. There aren't out of the woods yet, Kroot said. The question is, will they be able to show sustained growth on the entertainment and sports side of the business? Still, Disney is demonstrating that among Hollywood's legacy film and TV studios, it appears well-positioned to weather the disruption wrought by the shift to streaming. Traditional rivals, including Paramount, Global, and Warner Brothers Discovery, have been struggling to maintain their standing in the wake of Netflix's takeover of the television industry and the arrival of global behemoths Apple and Amazon into the streaming arena. Disney's stock, rebound, Disney's stock rebound has more to do with business fundamentals than Iger's announced initiatives, including teaming up with Fox Corp and Warner Brothers Discovery to introduce a new streaming service with more than a dozen sports-centric legacy cable channels, ESPN and TNT, among others, analysts said. Iger's year-long cost-cutting efforts, including eliminating 8,000 positions, drove the stronger earnings. Financial losses in the streaming service business 
shrank to $216 million during the most recent quarter from losing more than a billion dollars during the same period a year prior. Disney reiterated that its streaming business would show profits by September. Looking at our results this quarter, we can say with confidence, our strategy is working, Iger said during last week's first quarter earnings call. Disney also revealed that it has secured the streaming rights to an extended version of Swift's Eras Tour concert movie, which will debut March 15 on Disney+. That should help plug the gaps in the company's programming release pipeline brought in large part by last year's writers and actors strikes. Disney Plus has 111 million subscribers worldwide, down slightly from the previous quarter. But the strength came from Disney's workhorses, the vaunted theme parks, cruise line, and consumer products division, which generated a record profit of $9.1 billion in the quarter, thanks in part to improving economic conditions. The division's operating income increased 8% to $3.1 billion. International parks, including those in Shanghai and Hong Kong, and the Disney Cruise Line led the way. Domestic parks, which have raised prices, posted slightly lower results. Chief Financial Officer Hugh Johnston, who joined the company in November from PepsiCo and Iger, pleased uh, pleased Wall Street with news that the company planned to spend $3 billion repurchasing shares. It finally feels like the company has some financial control, in a way that Disney hasn't felt in a number of years, said Michael Nathanson of the Moffitt Nathanson research firm said, adding that activist shareholders are also due some credit. Disney hopes the market's re- reaction will blunt calls by Peltz and Blackwells to, uh, to shake up the board. Peltz wants to dump two board members, Michael B.G. Froman, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, and Maria Elena Lagomassino, CEO of We Family Offices, which serves high net worth families to make room for him and Jay Rasulo, a former Disney chief financial officer. Tryon beneficially owns $3 billion of Disney common stock, amassed in large part by longtime Marvel Entertainment chairman Ike Perlmutter, who was ousted from Disney last year. Blackwell, for its part, calls Caltrian's slate uninspiring. The firm wants to break up Disney, and it nominated three board candidates of its own, media veteran Jessica Schell, real estate expert Craig Hatkoff, and TaskRabbit founder Leah Sullivan. Disney has called on shareholders to ignore both activist groups and support its slate of 12 board members, including Iger, during its annual meeting. The, uh, the company enlisted Donald Duck's scatterbrained cartoon uncle, Professor Ludwig von Drake, in a video on VoteDisney.com to make its case that Disney's current board members are up for, uh, to the job. Peltz, for his part, isn't backing down. It's deja vu all over again, Peltz's firm said in a statement. We saw this movie last year, and we didn't like the ending. Last week's earnings gave Disney a welcomed win in the wake of a recent legal setback. A federal judge in Tallahassee, Florida, last month tossed the First Amendment lawsuit the company brought against its nemesis in the culture wars, Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. Disney has tried to argue that DeSantis's led, DeSantis-led charges to Florida land use laws were retaliation against the entertainment giant for publicly criticizing Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay law two years ago. Disney swiftly appealed the judge's ruling.
Disney faces challenges on other fronts, too. The company continues to confront the ravages of audience decline, declines in linear television, which have hammered the ABC network and longtime cash cow ESPN. Disney is attempting to walk a fine line by preserving the lucrative paid TV bundle while separately offering products with fewer channels to sports fans who don't want to pay more than $100 a month. Disney is planning to release the flagship ESPN channels directly to consumers in the fall of 2025. And coming this fall, the company will contribute its linear sports channels to the yet-unnamed streaming service that Disney will co-own with Fox and Warner Brothers, Discovery. The companies haven't dis uh, announced a price point, but some analysts believe that it might top $50 a month in an attempt to draw cord cutters and cord nervers. A particular concern is still that Disney's movie side has struggled, leading Iger to acknowledge late last year that the company had lost focus in the rush to crank out content for its streaming services. There is an overhang of poorer performing films, but the company has said it will concentrate more on quality than quantity, said Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, a senior associate dean of the Yale School of Management. That focus is really important. The company, during its earnings call, announced that a sequel to Moana, the 2016 animated film that, according to Iger, was the most streamed movie of 2023 in the United States, is coming to theaters in November. It was originally conceived as a series to be streaming streamed on Disney+, Plus, but the company changed tack and decided to release the sequel as a feature in theaters. Several other Disney sequels are also on the way after strike-related delays. Raymond James analyst Rick Prentice pointed to the partnership between Disney and Epic Games as another way to draw advertisers who are clamoring to reach the younger demographic. If you're going to be a relevant, growing player, you better have gaming in your kickback, Prentice said, adding that Disney's play is not just to create a game, but to create an environment where people spend a lot of time. Improving the film slate, guiding ESPN into streaming, and reducing the streaming losses are key. Iger's doing well to have this stock bounce after just one year back on the job, Sonnenfeld said. A turnaround usually takes three years. That was Disney's Iger Regains Footing by Meg James and Christy Karras from the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, February 13, 2024. All right, and we go to this one from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times for Saturday, February 17, 2024. Survey. Anti-Semitism has become a five-alarm fire by Tiffany Stanley. Nearly two-thirds of American Jews feel less secure than they did a year ago, according to a new national survey. The American Jewish Committee, a prominent advocacy organization, conducted the survey just as the Israel-Hamas war began on October 7. The number of American Jews who say they feel less secure in the U.S. jumped 22% from last year's survey. This year's study shows us very clearly that anti-Semitism that was really uh, just a slimmering, simmering flame is now, especially since October 7, a five-alarm fire, said Ted Doach, ex chief executive of the American Jewish Committee. One quarter of American Jews who responded to the survey released Tuesday said they had been the target of anti-Semitism in the past year. Almost half of Jewish respondents said they had altered their behavior during the past year to avoid anti-Semitism, changing what they wore, what they posted online, or where they went so that other people would know they were Jewish.
I live in a rural area, and my home was most likely the only Jewish home in a 30-mile radius, a 62-year-old woman is quoted as saying in the report. We don't tell people, and outside the home do not show that we are Jewish. Such reticence is an enormous challenge for the Jewish community, Duch said, but it really represents a challenge for all of our society. The survey comes as Jewish and Muslim civil rights and advocacy groups have reported large increases in harassment, bias, and physical attacks against their members in the wake of the Israel-Hamas war. Brian Levin, founder and director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at Cal State San Bernardino, has uh, said he has seen a surge in anti-Jewish and Islamophobic internet searches since last fall, including eliminationist and homicidal language. Levin, who is not affiliated with the American Jewish Committee survey, said anti-Jewish hate crimes hit a record high last year in several major cities. As Jews are understandably feeling more insecure, police and social science data back up why, said Levin, Levin said. The AJC began its survey five years ago after the Tree of Life synagogue massacre in Pittsburgh, the deadliest anti-Semitic attack on U.S. soil. Since then, most Jews and more than half of Americans say they think anti-Semitism has increased according to the organization. This year's primary survey collected data from 1,528 Jewish adults in the U.S., while its companion company collected data from 1,223 U.S. adults. The surveys conducted by the polling firm SSRS has margins of error of 3.5% and 3.6% respectively. Jews between 18 and, th and 29 were more likely to report being a target of anti-Semitism. As universities grapple with anti-Semitism, around a quarter of Jewish college students or recent graduates reported hiding their religious identity or refraining from speaking about Israel on campus. Most American Jews, 85%, say the statement, Israel has no right to exist, is anti-Semitic. A 52-year-old male respondent is cited in the report as saying, criticizing Israel's political policies, example, treating of treatment of non-Jews in the country, Palestinians, for example, is not anti-Semitic. Saying that Israel should not exist as a result of these practices is anti-Semitic. Most Americans who witness anti-Semitism saw it online or on social media, but only 5% said they reported it. More than one in five American Jews said an online incident made them feel physically threatened. It's not, so it's, just, it's not just some of the memes or jokes, said Holly Huffnagel, the AJC's U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism. This is real, vitriolic anti-Semitism that's affecting them, that's making them feel physically unsafe. There's a growing awareness of anti-Semitism. Most American Jews and three-fourths of the general public believe anti-Semitism is a problem in the U.S., according to the surveys. That number increases for non-Jews who know someone who is Jewish. About 90% of Americans said everyone is responsible for fighting anti-Semitism. Last year, the Biden administration released a national strategy to combat anti-Semitism, and the AJC is encouraging further action on those recommendations. That was survey, anti-Semitism has become a five-alarm fire by Tiffany Stanley. From the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, February 17, 2024. Stanley writes for the Associated Press. All right, let's turn to a little entertainment news now. 
from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 16, 2024. Rhapsody in Blue still inspires after a hundred years. The messy, hopeful piece has a lot to teach us by Gustavo Ariano. I'm not sure when I first listened to George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, which premiered a hundred years ago this week from start to finish. Snippets that played throughout the soundtrack of my life as a child and teen. The opening ceremony of the 1984 Olympics at the LA Memorial Coliseum. Random cartoons. Commercials for United Airlines. Cameos in Disney productions. It's one of those classical pieces like Beethoven's 5th and ninth symphonies and Bach's spooky toccata and Fuege in D minor. That long ago left, or the, or left orchestra at halls to entrench themselves in the American psyche. When I finally got through Rhapsody in Blue in its entirety, it was the aural equivalent of the Big Bang, the wailing, breathless clarinet solo that kicks things off, the ride tubas and trombones that accentuate the opening section, the thunderous drums and cymbals that announce the beginning and end of movements, elegant violins, piano chords that jaunt along during solos and rise above the swirling, clashing chaos demanding to be acknowledged. The composition was a revelation. It swaggered and stomped and skipped. It was unpretentious and rollicking, nothing that I had known classical music to be, and sparked an admiration for Gershwin's creation that grows uh, the more I learn about him and his times. As orchestras around the, around the country celebrate Rhapsody in Blue throughout 2024, it's important to think of the piece as more than just music. In a year when Americans are fretting about our democracy in ways we haven't for decades, it tells the saga of this nation and offers a way forward. As Gershwin often recounted, he wrote Rhapsody in Blue in a rush after reading a newspaper article reminding him of his promise to debut a new concerto mixing classical music with the jazz that was riveting the nation's cool set at the time. Looking for a muse, the 26-year-old found one in the clangs, hisses, and whistles of a train trip to Boston. That base allowed Gershwin to construct a sort of musical kaleidoscope of America, of our vast melting pot, of our unduplicated national pep, of our metropolitan madness, he told a music critic in 1931. His final product nailed it, both musically and thematically. Hints of Cuban clave rhythms, Tin Pan Alley harmonies, Jewish melodies and piano licks swim through its overarching romantic theme. The messy pace, alternately defiant, maudlin, weepy, and bombastic, sounds like a country that was working things out within, within itself, but nevertheless remained optimistic and confident about its future. There was no better person to envision this sonic tribute to the United States than Gershwin. He never attributed any explicit political significance to Rhapsody in Blue, because he didn't have to. He was the child of working-class Jewish immigrants who fled the tyranny of the Russian Empire for a chance at a better life in New York. His work wrestled with the questions that every second-generation American faces. Do you maintain the customs of the old country, reject them completely to fully assimilate into mainstream society, or do you grab the best of the two and mix it with what you pick up from other cultures? Like many second-generation kids, he chose the latter scenario and lived it with gusto. Gershwin made his decision in a city teeming with people from around the world. 
and a nation that saw the influx of foreigners as alien and threatening. Three months after the debut of Rhapsody of Blue, President Coolidge signed the Johnson-Reed Act. It severely, severely curtailed immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe and created the Border Patrol to keep out Asians and Mexicans, the antithesis of everything that Gershwin's Ode to America celebrated. Rhapsody in Blue is most identified with New York as it should be. Gershwin was a Gothamite. He debuted in Manhattan, and the best recording of it remains Leonard Bernstein conducting the Columbia Symphony in 1959 while playing the piano. Too bad Bradley Cooper didn't recreate the scene in his recent Bernstein biopic, Maestro. Yet we in Los Angeles should also claim a part of Gershwin and his genius. He decamped to Southern California with his brother Ira to plug away in Hollywood, seeing better times in L.A. instead of the East Coast. But George's career was tragically cut short when he died in 1937 at just 38 after surgery to remove a brain tumor. One could only imagine what Southern California gateway to Latin America and Asia might have taught Gershwin had he lived. His tour de force is aspirational, inspirational, and offers lessons for all of us. Yet there's always been pushback against the brilliance of Rhapsody in Blue. Bernstein once told The Atlantic that it was a string of separate paragraphs stuck, stuck together with a thin paste of flour and water and not a real composition even as he described Gershwin as my idol. In recent decades, scholars have accused Gershwin of cultural appropriation for daring to be a Jewish man who fused his love of black music with classical music, a fusion that reached its apogee with the opera Porgy and Bess. Recently, composer Ethan Iverson wrote in the New York Times that Rhapsody in Blue was the worst masterpiece in the classical canon, describing it as Caucasian, whatever the hell that means. To think of it as corny and antiquated and white misses the, its revolutionary potential. Thank God the public has understood its truth all along. There is a reason why it's a standard that symphonies trout out whenever they need a sellout. The Los Angeles Philharmonic will play it at the Hollywood Bowl this summer, site of many iconic performances featuring Gershwin's Au Revoir. While why eyes glisten as people rise from their seats when the orchestra reaches the rousing conclusion. It's unabashedly hopeful and proud of this country's mess. It dares you to feel the same. It's America at its best. That was Rhapsody in Blue Still Inspires After a Hundred Years by Gustavo Ariano from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, February 16, 2024. Right, now we've got this one. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 4th, 2024. Am I just being me, or am I acting? Before Larry David's famously cringe-inducing chronicle of social transgression winds down, the cast recalls most of its indelible moments by Whitney Friedlander. Interviewing, <clears throat> interviewing Larry David at a Santa Monica production offices comes with photographic documentation of the entrance and a note to pull in and park as straight as possible in order to be courteous to the building's other tenants. But when I arrived on a re recent Wednesday morning, someone had taken up two spots. Oh, that Larry laughs Laura Streicher, co-executive producer of Creator and star of David's famously cringe-inducing chronicle of social transgression, Curb Your Enthusiasm. He's a big parker. The phrase is one of many 
that have entered the vernacular from, uh, from the HBO comedy series, which premiered in 2000, restarted in 2017 after a six-year gap, and will supposedly conclude with its forthcoming 12th season, premiering Sunday. Originating in season 8, Pig Parker means something who is self-absorbed and greedy enough not to take the time to park between the lines, an act that will inevitably lead to utter bedlam and the destruction of a democratic state. Although Curve is largely improvised, there is an outline for each episode and a story arc for the season. Some of the terms made famous by the show stem from conversations, ideas, or situations that happened decades ago, even before David and Jerry Seinfeld's legendary NBC sitcom Seinfeld. Others, like the titular euphemism of Season 9's A Disturbance in the Kitchen, derive from more recent events, in this case, what a real-life waiter told David to explain why his meal was delayed. In the episode, David's character decides to investigate the situation and gets into a fight with the chef. Whatever their provenance, all usually allow David's alter ego to serve as a cathartic everyman for both the real David and those watching at home. He is a pretense-free embodiment of everything that members of polite society wish they could say but don't. Then again, for most of us, fighting in a restaurant, blowing up a business deal over a broken toilet seat, talking during a prayer service, or going to all-out war with a coffee shop owner or another patient in the doctor's waiting room would mean shame, social ostracism, possibly jail. On Curb, it's simply par for the course. The language of the series has even bled into David's personal life, as it's become increasingly difficult to separate the man behind Curve from his character on it. David has not necessarily discouraged this conflation, but he once told a journalist during a panel at the Television Critics Association press tour that TV Larry is just a quarter of an inch away from real Larry. Real Larry plays TV Larry. As the show got more popular, it gave me a little more liberty to behave in the way that the character behaves, which is the way I'd like to behave, David says. At a dinner party now, I'll always be the first to leave, and people just expect it. There's a downside, though. I can't fight with people anymore, David laments. I used to fight with people. I'd ask someone the time and they'd go, I don't know. And I'd go, it's just the time. I can't do that anymore. I can't have any confrontations because I'll be filmed. I'll be on the internet. So I have to be on my best behavior when I'm out amongst them. Nowadays, David usually takes notes on his phone because it's more inconspicuous than a notepad and because he says he was bereft when he lost a pocket journal of ideas 20 years ago. Imagine if that wound up on eBay. Ideas then go into what series executive producer and showrunner Jeff Schaefer dubs the Google search a desk drawer in David's office that is filled with spiral notebooks brimming with handwritten transcriptions of these observations. It's unlikely any of these musings or encounters will stop when Curb ends, which David insists is happening even if fans are dubious of a creator who already ended the series' fifth season in 2005 with an episode titled The End and almost ended last season with his character dying. I don't feel like Larry's done having spirited conversations with the populace of the west side of Los Angeles, says Schaefer. Before the sun sets on Curb Your Enthusiasm one last time, David, Schaefer, and some of the series' most prominent cast members shared the backstories behind a handful of Curb's greatest moments. 
pretty, pretty, pretty good. All of the catchphrases associated with Curb, David's drawn-out refrain that things are pretty, pretty, pretty good, when they most definitely not has become the show's de facto tagline. It's first used in the series' third episode as a form of shorthand relating information to one character that's the opposite, the opposite of what the audience already knows. Here, Larry ponders how, or if, to tell his then-wife Cheryl, Cheryl Hines, that his quest to get driving directions didn't go swimmingly. It's also been used on the show as a stall tactic or avoidance strategy during other encounters and conversations Larry does not want to have. The bit began in David's days as a stand-up in the 1980s, when he joked that you could never really tell your parents how you feel. You could be on the verge of suicide with your head in the oven, and they'd say, how are you feeling? I'm good. I'm doing good. But the phrase would be nothing without its setup. Hines trained at the Groundlings Improv Theater. She says that one of the ideas behind their teaching of improv is to not ask questions in an improv. But in Curb, I have to. For the first three seasons of the show, she never even got an outline of the script. I never know what they're shooting in other scenes, she explains. A lot of the time, I don't even know what's been shot or what's been said. By the time he tells me what's going on, it's bad. So my only reaction is, what are you saying? Why did you do that? Why would you do that? Beloved Aunt When Cheryl and her family mourn a relative in season one, Larry offers to help by writing the obituary but submits it with an unfortunate typo that turns the word ant, A-U-N-T, into a similarly spelled vulgarity most often directed at women. David says the storyline came from an actual typo a New York Times reporter told him about that. Luckily, it did not make it into print. It also, it's also one of the few times the show has made Larry's infraction accidental. David jokes that my character is mailable. Sometimes, Schaefer explains, we'll get as sharp as attack Larry, who's calling someone on something, or if the scene calls for it, slightly oblivious Larry, who's going to keep pounding and not knowing he's stepping in it further. Robert B. White, who was Curb's principal director and executive producer on its first five seasons and still directs episodes of the show, admits that he will occasionally give somebody a line if I thought it was funnier. While directing this episode, he gave Paul Dooley, who plays Cheryl's father, the line, I'm just glad you weren't in charge of the headstone. Larry Trips Shack Curb's knack for showing how easily an innocent interaction can develop into mob rule is epitomized by the season two episode, Shack. There, Larry and his friend Richard Lewis, played by David's actual childhood friend, comedian Richard Lewis, have floor seats at Los Angeles, Lake, a Los Angeles Lakers game. Things are going fine until Larry stretches out his long legs and accidentally trips and injures star player Shaquille O'Neal. He is subsequently booed out of the arena. The only impetus was that I have sat on the floor and I have stuck my legs out and I thought, oh, this would be funny if one of them tripped on my legs, David says, uh, plainly of the episode's conception. Stunt performer Eric Mansker officially took the fall for O'Neal and director D. Parasot filmed that moment with just background performers. Wide says it's Mansker we see in the overhead shot, but that O'Neill took a less severe fall onto a mat onto mattresses so as to better sell it. Other aspects of the episode were shot at what was then called the Staples Center with a crowd watching. 
I knew it was going to be a trip, but I didn't expect the crowd to start booing, Lewis recalls. Some of the people that were sitting very far away, they might not have seen the cameras, but they would have recognized us. It's an example of not knowing what's real, he adds. Am I just being me, or am I acting? In this case, he says both the real and fictitious Richard Lewis wanted to get out of Dodge. He remembers walking up the stairs to get out of the arena with his jacket over his face. Susie's Standoff Susie Essman starred on Curb as a supporting player, appearing in the first season as the wife of Larry's manager and frequent partner in shenanigans, Jeff Green, Jeff Garland. But she really came into her own as Larry's foul mouth and flamboyantly dressed nemesis in the season two episode, The Doll. Inspired by David's own desire to give one of his daughter's dolls a haircut, the episode features Larry and Jeff stealing a doll from Jeff and Susie's daughter to make amends for another child's toy receiving a new do. It fails miserably, and aided by a perfectly cued score from music editor Stephen Rash, a Western-style standoff ensues. That's when that was, that was established that Jeff and Larry would live in fear of Susie, Espen recalls. That Susie stays married to Jeff despite a separation and his continued philandering is perfect, says showrunner Schaefer, because her presence feels organic to the story. Later in the series, Susie tells Jeff that if they were to split up, there's no way she'd give him a nice divorce. If they're going to be engaged in skullduggery, you need someone that they've got to skulk around, Schaefer says. And that person can't be living now in a townhouse in Venice. Garland, whose comedy background includes time at Chicago's Second City Improv House, says, I've worked with comedic actors before who liked doing a top. A top is where the scene's over, you stand in line, and they want to talk when, uh, when you're done, Garland explains. I never try to stop Susie Essman. I just have to live and breathe. Essman loses her voice on days when she has to scream in a scene. That said, I go home that night and I sleep really, really well because I'm so relaxed, she admits. Get in that A. One of the few people who can impart life lessons onto Larry is J.B. Smoove's Leon Black. Appearing in Curb's sixth season when Larry and Cheryl take in his sister Loretta, Vivica A. Fox, and her family after Hurricane Edna and then never leaving, Leon will go along with a lot of Larry's schemes because he also doesn't suffer fools. In the sixth season's fourth episode, The Lefty Call, Leon advises Larry that the only way to stand up to a bully is to get in that A. In other words, stand up for yourself. As with much of the magic of Curb's improvisational style, the scene reflects David and his character's teachable moments simultaneously. That was the first thing we ever did together, and Larry had, had never heard the term before, Smoove says. He was so perplexed as to what get in that A meant. So it really became a lesson for him while we were doing the scene. There have, been, there have got to be five versions of that scene, easily. One involved lighter fluid and a cigarette lighter. I called it an A arsonist. Anonymous donor. What's more obnoxious than someone who wants a plaque for being a good Samaritan? The people who say they don't want recognition, but also tell everyone that they're the so-called anonymous donor. Not surprisingly, David knows someone who did this. Also not surprisingly, this ate at him enough that he put it into the show. So David's friend and frequent Curb guest star Ted Danson returned to play a heightened version of himself as the titular anonymous donor during the show's sixth season.
Schaefer sees the episode less as David passive-aggressively acting out a grudge fantasy than him being a defender for social justice. It's also one of many episodes that winks at our culture's obsession with celebrity. Two men who are household names because of their television successes but with vastly different reputations go to war over who actually is the better person. My reputation is being nice, Danson concedes, so you can play that up and scrape away the fact that, actually, it's false in many ways and irritating to Larry. Or Larry can be obnoxious in his truth-telling about things that don't really need to be raised to that level of intensity. Plus, Danson says, you wouldn't allow a character on TV to be that obnoxious if he did not know that he was actually a kind of funny, sweet man at heart. One that one thing that is hard for Danson for about the show, because of Curb people believed he divorced his wife and occasional Curb co-star Mary Steenburgen. On the series, he is now appropriately enough dating Larry's ex-wife, Cheryl. It was hard even in make-believe land to be separated and divorced from my wife, he said. Danny Duberstein. Curb's knack for playing on the meta was in full gear during its seventh season. It gave the fan community what it wanted, a reunion with the cast of Seinfeld, while also mocking our need for it with David's unavoidable self-sabotaging. But it wasn't just David who poked fun at his foibles. Seinfeld co-star Richard, Michael Richards acknowledges his real-life racist rant at the Laugh Factory in 2006 when, in the series, he sees Leon at his dressing room door. As a favor to Larry, Leon has disguised himself as Danny Duberstein, a certified public accountant who was adopted into a Jewish family and survived a diagnosis of fictitious, except for the show, Groats disease. Leon clearly has not done any reading on these topics, and when Larry is late, he's left alone with Richards to convince him otherwise. Leon is now a character within a character, which is even another level to what Simon can bring to the scene, Smoove says. I like that, even as Leon supposedly being Danny Duberstein, I'm still selling something to Michael Richards. Palestinian Chicken As with Seinfeld, Curb is a Jewish show simply by the fact that its lead is Jewish. And the series has never shied away from hot-button or taboo topics across cultures. In the ninth season, a fatwa is issued against Larry. In the tenth, which aired in 2020, he dons a red MAGA hat to keep people away from him. Last season, he helped himself to a pair of shoes that had been worn by a Holocaust victim when his were ruined. In one of the most famous episodes, the season 8 entry, Palestinian Chicken, Curb took on one of the thorny subjects of all when Larry falls in love with the delicious chicken at a restaurant run by an anti-Semitic family and attempts to date one of its employees played by Anne Bedian. It's not like we're thinking, oh, let's hit the Jew card, David explains, adding that Curb is about putting him any place where someone with a 12-year-old mentally should not be. To wit, it's in this episode that Larry's behavior inspires Jeff to coin the term social assassin. Clean up your mess. Although it's said in the world of one percenters on LA's west side, Curb is frequently an attack on elitism. In the season 11 episode, The Watermelon, Kaylee Kuoko guest stars as Heidi, Larry's optometrist, who cannot be bothered to clean up the pirate's booty she drops on the floor. This is a, a sticking point, not just for Larry, but for his Fred 
quite for his friend Freddy, Vince Fawn, who was dating Heidi, but cannot let his, this transgression slide. Sometimes, the more specific you are with a real area and culture, the truth is that it's more universal, says Vaughn, whose character is the half-brother of Marty Funkhauser, played by the late Bob Einstein. He adds that what entertains the audience is how certain people and characters react to these situations. Whether you're reading a book or watching a movie or a show, the more rich and specific a world is that you step into, it's aesthetically more interesting. That was Am I Just Being Me or Am I Acting by Whitney Friedlander from the Canada section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 4th, 2024. All right, here's another one from the Canada section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 11, 2024. The ABCs of a writer's evolution. Sheila Hetty plays with form, makes discoveries in We Worked Diaries by Lynn Steger Strong. Talking to Sheila Hetty is disarming. Like her work, she is unselfconscious and brilliant, but in a way that you don't always recognize as brilliant because of how open and accessible she is. Hetty has made a career of doing what feels somehow both too obvious and impossible. Writing a novel called How Should a Person Be went Really, most novels circle around, circle that question. But in her hands, the question feels fresh and alive. Each book that Hetty has written has pressed further into the possibilities of what fiction can be while staying grounded in the mining of the self. In Alphabetical Diaries, Hetty has once again tried something that feels impossible, collecting her personal diary entries for more than 10 years recording the sentences in alphabetical order, shaping, cutting, colliding, to build a different form of narrative. Why the concept of diary feels illicit and unfiltered, and the pleasure of the ways you are peeking into some, something true and intimate is alive here, the genius of the book is how broadly human and carefully constructed it also feels. Hetty started to collect the diaries in 2010. How Should a Person Be had just been published in Canada, it would later come out in the U.S. two years later and borrowed heavily from her own experience. Large sections of the book are recorded uh, conversations Hetty had with her friends. The book's events track closely with those of Hetty's life, but it also contains fictionalized expert experiences. I wanted to look back on the years that I had been writing that book and remember what was true. I wanted to do something so I wouldn't forget what my real life had been. For years, Hetty had no intention to publish the diaries, and then slowly I started to think that this is actually real interesting to read. She broke them into individual sentences, then alphabetized them in a spreadsheet. I think I thought that if I alphabetized them, I would be able to look at who I had been in a sort of systematic, removed, more scientific or analytical way, not just getting lost in the various narratives or stories. But for a long time, she struggled with what to do with them. At one point, Hetty thought she'd published the diaries online as one 500,000-word document, J. I was like, maybe it shouldn't be unreadable long, unreadably long, but amazing for what it contains. This is an impulse that comes up again and again in, talks to he in talking to Hetty. She's always willing to try things. Risk and failure are inherent in her project. She's most interested in discovery and play. As with every project, as she considered this catalog of sentences, Hetty was in constant conversation with her friends. 
I think my work would die of suffocation if it didn't have my conversations with my friends as part of it, she says. In this case, two were fr friends, an artist and a designer, put all the sentences for, uh, for each letter in a paragraph, as they are in the book, and that kind of completely changed the book for me. The paragraphs let her see the project a more, project more clearly as a novel, and she felt freer to cut and shape with a reader in mind. Each of Hetty's projects has had a version of these steps. I always start by gathering a lot of writing together. I try to make as huge a pot as possible, not making any discrimination at first. And those are the ingredients. I then go through asking what energies can be found in putting this paragraph with this one. All they could, uh, they all could be belong anywhere or be cut. I like to think of myself once I start editing, no longer as the writer, but as maybe a chemist. What happens if these things are put together? Is there energy between them? Is there some kind of reaction or explosion? Much of the material of the previous projects came in the process of their creation, but with diaries, it was one. It was only after the sentences had been accumulated that she began to mine it for a book. This was a useful access point to a clarity and candor that Hetty's always reaching for. I'm always trying to get away from writing that is performance, she said. I wasn't performing when I was writing because I wasn't writing for anything else. I was just trying to work something through. So it's more like being a documentary filmmaker to try to find documents that then can be formed. The writing had been individual attempts to capture moments, feelings, impulses. The reshaping was to shift, was to shift those evanescent feelings into a coherent form. I think the main thing about storytelling is the fact that you are putting life into a sequence. I think we like it because it's so different from what it feels like to experience life, she said. The trick with diaries was that the most traditional form of sequencing, linearity, was already taken off the table. The sentences had been re-systemized as alphabetical, so Hetty had to find her way into a different type of narrative. But then this already showed itself to hold a sort of truth inside of it. I think the way we perceive time as humans is really not what time is, Hetty said. There's so much more actual jumping around in time in life that a, than a traditional kind of narrative can capture. In real life and in diaries, we move to memories, yearnings, cast, in, uh, cast about into the future. In the cutting and reshaping, Hetty chopped those initial 500,000 words down to 55,000. She wanted to offer a sequence that felt pleasing and comprehensive, but also closer somehow to this experience of moving in and out of time. By abandoning the constraint of time, new discoveries felt possible. One of them, she says, is how much more fixed and uh, immu immutable most humans are. One sentence from seven years later, and the two go side by side, and it seems like a narrative. What is that? That's not just editing. There's also something true about life. There is this penetration of time within time and incidents that we live within other incidents. Also, she says, the format of the book highlights how mostly similar we are. The self feels less personal to me now. I think getting older, you become less interested in your own self-image, your own reflection, and more curious about what do we all have in common. 
One of the reasons, she says, that she felt no shame about the bits of herself we see in the diaries was because I don't imagine I've ever thought of, I thought or felt a thing that other people haven't also felt. Like life, alphabetical diaries is destabilizing at first. The brain casts about for a sense or sequence to tether itself to. You track proper names, repeating ideas, sentiments. Gradually, something elemental, true, and human begins to form. There's a particular thrill in feeling like a new sense of narrative is accruing inside of you as well. I think the feeling I would hope of reading this book is that there's some simultaneity of the living of the writer and the reading of the reader. The readers, I hope, feel like they're being given something that is alive or that's still being lived. That was The ABCs of a Writer's Evolution by Lynn Steger Strong. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 11, 2024, Strong is a critic and author, most recently of the novel Flight. All right, we go to the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, February 13, 2024. Subculture Vulture, One Man's Many Lives. Comedian Moshi Kasher's tales range from life as Boy King of AA to Hasidic Jew by Rachel Brodsky. Moshi Kasher is sitting in a tiny kitchen on the second floor of St. Paul's Commons. Twice a month, the building, technically the oldest Episcopalian church in Los Angeles, is home to Nefesh, a spiritual transdenominational Jewish community based in Echo Park. Though Friday night services are set to begin at 7 p.m., we need a quiet place to discuss the stand-up comedian and podcaster's second book, Subculture Vulture, a memoir in six scenes an endlessly clever volume chronicling Cash's time as a boy king of Alcoholics Anonymous, a rave promoter DJ sober ecstasy dealer, a Burning Man security guard, sign language interpreter, stand-up comedian, and member of a Satmar Hasidic Jewish community. For our conversation, the church synagogue's kitchen will have to do for now. As Nefesh volunteers scurry in and out, Kasher apologizes for the temporary intrusion. Around us are culturally clashing foods, boxes of takeout Indian dishes set across the room from a cart of sliced challah and tiny cups of prayer wine. The divergent aromas are a convenient metaphor for subculture vulture, which outlines many lives coexisting within one person. Even Kasha's Jewish upbringing was an exercise in extremes. Born in Queens in 1979 to deaf parents who separated when he was nine months old, Kasher would spend most of the calendar year living a non-religious life with his mother in Oakland. However, once summer rolled around, he and his older brother would travel to Seagate, Brooklyn, where they'd switch their jeans for plain black slacks and adopt a temporary ultra-Orthodox lifestyle with their father and step-siblings. I'd simultaneously a more Jewish and much less Jewish upbringing than any of my Jewish friends, says Kasher, who currently lives in Los Angeles' east side with his wife, fellow comedian Natasha Leguero and their daughter. I didn't go to summer camp. I didn't really have much of a Jewish identity year-round. People don't understand the depths that I was in, Kasher adds about his time spent in the Hasidic community. Also, I don't understand the depths that can come from a year-round Jewish experience. I was a fully secular kid nine months out of the year, and then I would fly to Brooklyn and become this extra on the set of Fiddler on the Roof. 
Though it might sound potentially traumatic for a secular child to spend three months out of the year ensconced in, in, in a populace where married women shave their heads and services are routinely separated by gender, Kasher says he came out of the experience unscarred. Yes, it was not a great summer vacation, he admits, but it was so temporary. It was like I could be an insider anthropologist, go in and experience it, and get out and get back to my real life. As an adult, Kasher describes Judaism as a loose garment and Nefesh as a place that represents my aesthetic. It's easy to see why Nefesh appears to Kasher. It places special focus on interfaith outreach. The Gawa converted when she and Kasher got married in 2015. Interfaith relations remain controversial in many traditional Jewish settings. Nefesh also has a trans-queer rabbinic intern, Sasha Perry, a female head rabbi, Susan Goldberg, whom Kasher calls a dynamo, and vibrant musical presence, with each service being accompanied by themed original songs overseen by co-directors Duvid Swirsky, Kasher's first cousin, coincidentally, and Sally Dworsky. Because we are seated in a church-turned-synagogue for the night and engulfed in a discussion around Judaism and contemporary anti-Semitism, it must be asked, how is Kasher feeling as Jews the world over, particularly in the West, are at odds over how to respond to the events of October 7 and resulting Israel-Hamas war? Do you ever feel like you're spiritually, spiritually, spiritually oatmeal, replies Kasher, uh, answering a question with a question, how on brand? I feel like this middle of the road, not that spicy moderate. Kasher continues, recounting how, immediately after October 7, he attended a memorial event organized by his brother, who was now a rabbi. I realized on October 7, and in the aftermath, that I experienced things historically. That's how I process, he says. This event that my brother organized was extremely emotional. People were weeping, and I was weeping. I was staring at this man who was crying in the front row. And I start to see another version of, or an echo of, this man 500 years ago in a similar room, in a similar crisis, huddled together with the Jewish community at a time of great fear. I see this kind of fear echo throughout a 2,000-year history. Kasher, who holds a degree in religious studies from UCSB, has also grappled with uh, the war by doing a historical deep dive. The result? He's still oatmeal. I bought two books, Daniel Gordis's Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn, and Rashid Khalidi's Hundred Years' War on Palestine. That was the plan. I'm going to read a history book from an Israeli perspective, hopefully not too insanely biased, I'm going to read a history book from a Palestinian perspective, hopefully not too insanely biased. I have issues with both sides, Kasher muses. I have this deep envy of my friends right now, Kasher adds. Algorithmically, I'm in the middle. I can feel Instagram doing it for me. I get sent videos that portray Israel as pure heroics and videos portraying Palestinians as our pure martyrs in equal measure. I'm so envious of my friends who know who the bad guy is for sure. But I don't think that figuring out who the bad guy is does anything for anybody. I don't think it lends itself to getting closer to an answer. I think it lends itself to having comfort in a time where it is so unclear what to do. I just feel really heartbroken and hopeless about Israel and Palestine and all this endless violence. 
While subculture vulture is heavily in conversation with Kashir's unconventional Jewish upbringing, it contains five other sections that could easily merit their own individual memoirs. Picking up where 2012's Cashier in the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16 left off, Subculture Vulture weaves academic research with poignant personal narrative, both of which come overlaid with the author's bantering commentary. Across nearly 300 pages, Cashier recounts his time as a pubescent prostolizer in AA, a San Francisco DJ and raver, a Burning Man security guard. Yes, he got stuck in the mud last year, but everybody loved it. Sign language interpreter. And, with some inspiration from Bay Area hometown hero Chelsea Peretti, comedy club regular. Today, Cashier is best known for his audience-heckling stand-up prowess, high-profile TV spots on shows such as The Good Place and Shameless, and multiple Netflix specials. 20 Chills Moshi Cashier live in Oakland, and a 2018 joint special with Leguero, the Honeymoon Stand-Up Special, which later led to the couple hosting a spin-off relationship advice podcast called The Endless Honeymoon. There were inevitably times where these subcultures overlapped. Present-day Castro no longer attends AA meetings. Leaving, he says, was like being a church elder and having a slow realization that you don't know if you're a believer anymore or raves. Comedy, on the other hand, largely takes up his day-to-day acts as a vehicle to unfurl an endless array of stories about growing up with deaf parents, opposite extremes of Judaism, and attending Burning Man, where, again, the real burners, as opposed to weak people cosplaying as survivalists, were thrilled about last year's mud. I know that that's going to be painful to your readers, Cash quips about Black Rock, City's post-Rainstar move. I could sense a global schadenfreude about watching Burning Man attendees suffer, but nobody was suffering. The only people that were suffering were people there for the first their first year. If there is one unifying theme across all six subcultures, it is that everything changes whether it is the scene itself or you. Across two or so decades, Kashir has even had to find new ways to exist within comedy and the entertainment industry. Comedy has its 15-year unpaid internship, Kasher says, so getting paid at the end is the prize. When you're not getting paid, it's so much more vital and so much more exciting, striving. Once you get on the other side of the line, then you start to see the ugly part of the business and it becomes a different thing. But I can't leave comedy. I don't want to leave comedy. It's all I've done for 20 years. I pay my mortgage doing this. I feed my daughter doing this. So you're forced to find things in it that you still love. I think that's why I structured the book with comedy, history, and resources. Because this is something different. This feels meaningful. That is mainly unrelated lifestyles. That this many unrelated lifestyles can exist in one person makes for supremely entertaining reading. It's also clear that Cashier, an avid scholar with subjects that catch his interest, has used writing subculture vulture as a vehicle to learn about the adult he is today and leave a cultural time capsule for his five-year-old daughter, who he hopes will find her people amid an internet-flattened monoculture. I learned how much I like people on the margins of the world and people that fight for their existence and people that are weird, Cashier says of writing. Subculture... Uh, 
I also realized how much, and I think this is true for everybody, how much these experiences have resulted in me. For people reading it, I hope people learn a lot about things they didn't know about, Kasha continues. And for people that did know a lot about these worlds, I hope they have a good time reading a much more irreverent history of a world they, uh, that they know. Destiny exists looking backwards, Kasher said. I was always going here, for better or worse. There are love letters to things that I love, and I hope that people see what I saw in them, and I hope that they love them too. That was Subculture Vulture, One Man's Many Lives by Rachel Brodsky, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, February 13, 2024. All right, we got this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 14, 2024. John Stewart is back at his desk. Post returns to The Daily Show for a weekly stint, at least for election season, by Lorraine Ali, news and culture critic. Mondays, The Daily Show opened to a roaring applause and a standing ovation from the studio audience as they welcomed back host Jon Stewart, who left the show in 2015 after 16 years at the helm. Why am I at back, you may be asking yourself, and that's a reasonable question, he said with a grin on his face. I've committed a lot of crimes, and from what I understand, talk show hosts are granted immunity. Stewart's high energy matched the anticipation around his return to the Comedy Central show, which was hosted by Trevor Noah up until 2022, when he stepped down. The last year and a half has been, an an has been anchored by a string of guest hosts, including Cal Penn, Charlemagne the God, Sarah Silverman, and Michelle Wolf. Now that Stewart's back, he'll anchor the show every Monday night at least until the presidential election in November. The other nights will be populated with a rotating array of correspondents. But a lot has changed since Stewart left his post, including national levels of political vitriol and the role of the media in making or breaking candidates. Consider that when Stewart was the last host, Bill O'Reilly was the kingpin at Fox and the possibility of Donald Trump in the Oval Office was a joke. Stewart dove into his opening monologue with the zeal wit and timing that made him a pioneer of modern late-night political satire. In discussing the Super Bowl, he flicked at absurd conspiracy theories about the NFL and Taylor Swift being the operatives for the Democratic Party. The game was really a kind of no-win for conservatives who feared the success of a Biden plot if the Kansas City Chiefs won over the San Francisco 49ers, he said. But if the Chiefs lost, who wins? The People's Communist Republic of Gay Pelosten, quipped Stewart. Pelosten. Appearing early, earlier Monday on CBS Mornings, the 61-year-old joked that he was well-positioned to cover this election because he's someone who truly understands two aging men past their prime. Stewart appeared on In His Element Monday night and admitted as much about his return to The Daily Show. The host last in Daver. Apple TV Plus show The Problem with Jon Stewart lasted just two seasons. Stewart told the CBS host that he very much wanted some kind of place to unload thoughts as we get into this election season. I thought I was going to do it over at, they call it Apple TV Plus. It's a television enclave, very small. It's like living in Malibu. But they felt that they didn't want me to say things that might get me in trouble. 
Stewart, who is also executive producer of The Daily Show, spent most of his time Monday night doing what he does best, cutting through contentious political discourse with insight and humor, and a homing in on the critical issues. His trademark brand of, of both sides-isms, which, while remaining firmly progressive, diminished Bill Maher's recent efforts to brand his HBO show as the only place where both sides are represented. President Biden and former President Trump were the main focus of Stewart's opening show. He spoke about them next to a graphic that, uh, that, that pictured both men looking their age. Nine months until the election, people and we already know our candidates. Drumwell, please. These effing guys, he said in a deflated tone. Then the new banner for this year's election flashed on the screen. Indecision 2024. America de mock Russie. And electile dysfunction. Later he changed it to Indecision 2024 Antiques Roadshow. Stewart offered a refreshing perspective on how both Democrats and Republicans have largely avoiding lar have largely avoiding look avoiding looking at their own candidates' advanced age while weaponizing the same factor against their opponents. The question then becomes, what the F are we doing here, people? joked Stewart. We have two candidates who are chrono chronologically outside the norm of anyone who has run for the presidency in the history, in, the, in this in this country, in the history of in the history of the country. They are the oldest people ever to run for president, breaking by only four years the record that they set the last time they ran. What's crazy is thinking that we're the ones as voters who must silence concerns and criticisms. It is the candidate's job to assuage concerns, not the voter's job not to mention them. The graying steward asked the camera operator to come in for a close shot of his face. I didn't want to have to do this on my first day. Look at me. Look what time hath wrought. Give the kids a treat of the lunar surface here. I'm like 20 years younger than these mother f And if you think 20 years isn't that long, this is me 20 years ago. And popped up a photo of Stuart looking, well much younger. Look, the next nine months or so, and maybe more than that, depending on the coup schedule, they're going to suck. They're going to be getting emails with insane subject lines like, hello, Jump, it's Chuck Schumer. Donald Trump is right behind you with a knife. You're going to be inundated with robocalls, he says, and push polls and real polls. It's all going to make you feel like Tuesday, November 5th, is the only day that matters, and that day doesn't does matter. But man, November 6th ain't nothing to sneeze at, or November 7th. If you guys, if your guy loses, bad things might happen. But the country is not over, he continued. If your guy wins, the country is in no way saved. I've learned one thing over the last nine years. I was glib at best and probably dismissive at worst about this. The work of making this world resemble one you'd prefer to live in is a lunch pail job, day in and day out where thousands of committed, anonymous, smart, and dedicated people bang on closed doors and pick up those who have fallen and grind away on issues until they get a positive result, and even then have to stay on to make sure that results hold. So the good news is I'm not saying you don't have to worry about who wins the election. I'm saying you have to worry about every day before it and every day after it, forever. Although, on the plus side, I'm told that at some point, the sun will run out of hydrogen. 
The, the show also featured an interview with Zanny Minton Bedos, editor-in-chief of The Economist, and dispatches from the correspondence from on the campaign trail. From the outside, a diner in Michigan, Dilce Sloan, complained that uh, the election was, uh, was a tired reboot. They already had this job. Now these old white dudes gotta come back and reclaim it? Like, come on. Go do something new and don't be so desperate. Let someone else run the show, she said, clearly referring to Stewart's return. Later, Jordan Klepper, who will be hosting the show the rest of the week, appeared behind the desk with Stewart. Did you save democracy yet? asked Klepper, with your 90s brand of snark and botherisms se uh, searing John. And with that, Stewart was back. That was John Stewart is back at his desk by Lorraine Ali, news and culture critic. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, February 14, 2024. Okay, now we're going to get into some articles from the envelope section of the Los Angeles Times for February 8, 2024. We're going to start off with this one. This is called Hollywood Learned to Love the Bomb. Oppenheimer tells the story of a man. It was preceded over the decades with tales of the fear he wrought by Chris Wagner. The awards juggernaut Oppenheimer is the story not just of a man, J. Robert Oppenheimer, but also the world he helped create, a world in which fear of the atomic bomb and then the hydrogen bomb became a regular feature of American life. Oppenheimer, played by Killian Murphy, saw the terror coming and experienced his fair share of remorse. Some of the movie's most indelible scenes depict the Los Alamos honcho shuddering at what he hath wrought. The movie saw the capacity for atomic terror as well, starting in the 1950s, running through the 60s, and carrying over into an age of renewed anxiety in the Reagan-era arms buildup. These movies encompassed sci-fi drama, noir, and even comedy, as they spotlighted a brave new world marked by duck-and-cover drills, apocalyptic speculation, and the legitimate possibility that the world could end at any moment, thanks largely to the man who cribbing from the Bhagavad Gita, allegedly described himself as Death, Destroyer of Worlds. The first wave of atomic movies were sci-fi, a genre that, as film historian Foster Hirsch points out, didn't even exist as a genre in America until the 1950s. When Hollywood did handle the atomic age, it was handled in not in a straightforward, realistic way, but in a fantastic way, allegorical and metaphorical, and often through monsters, said Hirsch, author of Hollywood and the Movies of the 50s, in a recent video interview. That was how Hollywood was able to dramatize the impact of the bomb and the fact that we had the power to blow ourselves to smithereens. Hearst points to the murderous architect creature of The Thing from Another World, 1951, the rampaging dinosaur awakened by atomic testing in The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, 1953, and the giant ants that swarm the New Mexico desert in Them, 1954. Among Hearst's favorite movies of the period is Jack Arnold's The Incredible Shrinking Man, 1957, a metaphor-led fantasy in which a businessman is reduced to near-microscopic size after exposure to a cloud of radiation and insecticide. We shrink, we shrink to zero as if we are reborn into another world, Hirsch says. It's the end of this world and the beginning of another parallel universe that we can't enter yet. The same decade brought Robert Aldrich's Kiss Me Deadly, 1955, 
a deeply cynical film noir starring Ralph Meeker as pulp novelist Mickey Spillane's sleazy private detective Mike Hammer. Hammer's on the trail of The Great What's It, a highly coveted case that everyone seems willing to kill for. Hammer figures there's some kind of treasure inside. He has no idea. A police lieutenant tries to explain the stakes. I'm going to pronounce a few words. They're just harmless words. Just a bunch of letters scrambled together. But their meaning is very important. Try to understand what they mean. Manhattan Project. Los Alamos. Trinity. He sounds as if he's just seen Oppenheimer. But he's trying to warn Hammer about the case, which is in fact Pandora's box. And when it's opened in the film's climax, it leaves a mighty cloud. Anxiety ramped up in the 60s. The Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 made the threat of impending nuclear war more real than ever. And the movies were there to respond. First as comedy, then as tragedy. 1964 brought both Dr. Strangelove and Failsafe, which used the same basic premise. Systemic failure leads to nuclear war between America and Russia to yield drastically desperate movies. Stanley Kubrick's Strangelove presents a psychotic, gung-ho general, Jack D. Ripper, Sterling Hayden, who orders an attack on Russia in fear of a communist plot to drain his precious bodily fluids. The pitch-black comedy that follows encompasses hot-to-trot General Buck Churgidson, played by George C. Scott, and modeled on U.S. Strategic Air Command head Curtis LeMay. Ineffectual U.S. President Merkin Muffley, Peter Sellers, a dead ringer for two-time Democratic presidential nominee Adlai Stevenson, and Strangelove himself, also Sellers, a U.S. military advisor, and Third Reich holdover tickled pink by the prospect of mutual destruction. The more melancholy take arrived later in the year. In Sidney Lumet's failsafe, a computer glitch sends U.S. bombers toward Russia. The historic president, Henry Fonda negotiates with his Soviet counterpart as the clock ticks. The two eventually arrive at a horrific but somehow reasonable compromise that essentially trades the destruction of Moscow for the destruction of New York City. If Strangelove was a belly laugh, Failsafe was a muffled cry. But there was one more key piece of atomic filmmaking that year. This one, a strategic strike. The daisy Lyndon B. Johnson presidential campaign ad, which used a little girl a flower, a countdown, and a climactic mushroom cloud to suggest that Johnson's opponent, Barry Goldwater, would leave the world to Armageddon. Political advertising would never be the same, would never be civil again. The 1980s brought a new age of nuclear fear, as the U.S. under President Ronald Reagan engaged Russia in a revamped arms race. Like 1964 and 83 proved to be an event. 1983 proved to be an eventual year for atomic energy. More than 100 million people tuned in to Nicholas Meyer's The Day After, a TV movie that dramatized the effects of nuclear holocaust in Kansas. Meanwhile, John Badham's War Games, a mischievous teen Matthew Broderick accidentally hacks the U.S. missile system, leading the country once again to the brink of mass destruction. This is the era that inspired journalist James Oliphant's obsession with atomic movies, an obsession that would lead him to create his Stubstack Nuclear Theater. Musing on movies about the nuclear threat and broader Cold War issues, Oliphant taps into his years as an 80s high school student who could not learn to stop worrying and love the bomb. There was this sense that there was no way out, he said in the video interview. 
I couldn't even imagine that there would be any sort of disarmament or that any side would back down. You couldn't conceptualize that the Soviet Union would fall apart in a matter of years and that the threat would seemingly vanish. But it never vanishes entirely. In a sense of all these movies are the children of Oppenheimer and the parents of Oppenheimer. That trinity test blast depicted so hauntingly in the movie resonates still, and the technology he spearheaded remains more than capable of destroying worlds. That was Hollywood Learned to Love the Bomb by Chris Wagner. Okay, now this next article is called A, Critics Rank, A Critic Ranks the Best Picture Nominees from Top to Bottom. It is by Justin Chang, but uh, three, or we're going to only go through three of these movies, which have to do with us Jews. But this is by Justin Chang. It's again called A Critic Ranks the Best Picture Nominees from Top to Bottom. In ranking this year's Best Picture Nominees from Worst to Best, I'm essentially doing, in reverse order, what every Academy Award voter does when filling up the preferential ballot. The differences, of course, are my unimpeachable taste and my extreme verbosity, neither of which I make any apology for. Here goes. Number six, Maestro. Even when the trailer ignited a social media firestorm back in August, I didn't suspect that Bradley Cooper's Leonard Bernstein drama, which he directed, starred in, and co-wrote and produced, would become the year's most polarizing prestige movie. Cooper's discourse-poking decision to wear a prosthetic nose may have been the least of his worries. His detractors have dismissed his entire performance as hammy and overly mannered. Others have faulted him for focusing too much on Bernstein's marriage to Felicia Montalegri, a luminous devastating Carrie Mulligan, shortchanging his music and his homosexuality in the process. Still others seem to have prematurely dismissed Maestro based purely on Cooper's desperate hunger for a golden statuette. He's now a 12-time nominee, as if letting on that you want to win an Academy Award were something shameful. I wouldn't give Cooper an acting Oscar this year myself, insofar as his rendition of Lenny doesn't match the emotional depths of his earlier nominated work in American Sniper and A Star is Born. But I'm in full appreciation of his formal acumen and directorial brio here, the way that he and cinematographer Matthew Lebatique reshaped the drama of the marriage into an emotionally charged, exquisitely choreographed ballet. I'm also mystified by those who've dismissed Maestro as just another standard biopic, when in fact it's more or less the opposite. Here's the rare Hollywood drama that rightly sacrifices scattershot comprehensiveness for piercing intimacy that understands the impossibility of doing one life, let alone two lives, justice. It also knows that few things are richer cinematic fodder than a genuinely complicated marriage, less a born out uh, by Killers of the Flower Moon, as well as the next nominee down the list. Number two, Oppenheimer. Christopher Nolan deserves an Oscar long before he set out to make his monumentally unsettling historical epic about the development of the atomic bomb during World War I. My Heart is with Memento, which earned him an adapted screenplay nomination. With The Dark Knight ridiculously overlooked in the picture and director races, and with chronically underappreciated Interstellar, a magnum opus uh, that will only gain in stature, I suspect as this young century unspools, Indeed, Oppenheimer only gains in resonance when interpreted as a kind of reverse companion piece to Interstellar. Here are two sprawling beat-the-clock thrillers about one man's desperate search for a scientific answer, though in the case of the theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer, played with haunting gravity by Killian Murphy. 
what he discovers is not the key to salvation, but rather a weapon of mass destruction. For a filmmaker known for his elaborate games with chronology, notably 2017's Dunkirk, which earned him his first directing Oscar nomination, the timing of Oppenheimer feels curiously right. It's the nerviest gamble and least probable triumph of Nolan's career, and the cinematic lessons it affords us, about the glories of big screen and giant screen cinema, about the rewards an artist can achieve by banking on the audience's intelligence, by it and never been more worth absorbing industry-wide. That Nolan is going to win the director Oscar seems, by this point, the happiest foregone conclusions. I suspect Amenheimer will prevail in the Best Picture race, too, and would have been all too glad to see to, to the number one spot on this list had the Academy not had the wisdom to nominate the interest in the zone of interest. Well, unfortunately, folks, it looks like we are about to come to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. For everything happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, Israel, and the nation, find it here. Shalom and peace. <laughs>